And welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and our guests this week are the Cold Hearts. The Cold Hearts are from Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and they are Katie Hartman and Nick Ryan. They were recently in Ithaca, New York for the second annual Ithaca Fringe Festival, performing their show, Edgar Allen. Edgar Allen is a musical horror tale about a rather self-important 11-year-old Edgar Allan Poe away at boarding school in England. Edgar Allan was so well-received that it won the Ithaca Fringe's Audience Pick Award. Katie and Nick were gracious enough to sit with Onstage Offstage just before their final performance, and of course, we wanted to know first off about their taste for the horror genre. I guess we collaborated on... Um just a couple projects when we when we first met about 10 years ago um mostly driven by nick and i had the pleasure of being able to act in them well yeah i mean i was the i was a playwright um katie was an actress uh she acted in a couple scripts that i wrote with a kind of a core group of artists that we worked with in minneapolis um but that kind of we probably did the last one of those about eight years ago and then there was about a five six year period where we didn't really work on projects together we both worked with many other groups and um but it wasn't until uh the summer of 2012 uh that we decided that we knew there was a new there's a new horror uh horror theater festival happening in the twin cities um that uh colleagues of ours were starting we knew i i knew that katie wanted to create a one-woman show so i think i proposed uh, proposed to her let's create a one-woman ghost story for you for this new festival. Um, uh, like, I'll direct, you will perform, and we'll write it together, essentially. Um, and just asked her, do you have any ideas about what this piece could be? Other than the fact that it is confined to the horror genre, it was pretty much wide open beyond that. Um, There's so many different ways to go with horror. I mean, hmm. you can go with the slasher gore stuff, you can go with the traditional ghost, uh, you know, appearances, that sort of thing. Um, how'd you figure this out? I grew up in Kansas. I would go to my father's parents' house in Hayes, Kansas, every summer and stay with them for about two weeks. And this is western Kansas. It's very flat. It's very windy. It's very hot. We're talking like in cold blood country or something like this? Or? In cold... Holcomb is Because it's always central. portrayed as lonely and misty and cold and desolate. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's eight hours from Denver. It's six hours from Kansas City. It mm-hmm. is literally... It's smack dab in the center of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my grandmother told me there's the old Civil War fort, that uh, Fort Hayes, which was built... To, um, actually to combat the, the Indians while the railroad was coming through. And there was an old legend about Elizabeth Polly, who was a, a nurse there in the 1860s. And she passed away f- after taking care of soldiers for many years. She passed away from smallpox, the same disease that she had been uh, treating for the previous uh, few years. And her soldiers, she was so beloved that they, they fulfilled her wishes to bury her on the hill that she would walk to about two miles from the fort every night and watch the sun go down. That was her, that was her time to unwind and, and uh, take a deep breath and, before heading back to the sickness. So they, they, they fulfilled her wish by burying her up there and gave her a small monument and ever since that time in the late 1860s, there were sightings of her ghost. 
and mm. she was called the Blue Light Lady. You would see a blue. It was purported that you would see a blue light on the hill, and Did that was her? Elizabeth Polly. Uh, I never saw her, but I have to say that having an upbringing in Kansas, it's a very mm. spiritual place. Um, I grew up in a Protestant church, but it, um, it is, it was a, it was a, it was a magical childhood, and I had, I had ample time to roam. And I, as soon as I heard this story, I was obsessed with ghost stories. And from that point on, whenever we took car trips anywhere, I, I, that was my. Souvenir. I went into the local bookstore or the museum and I got their collection of ghost stories. Right. And The Legend of White Woman Creek was a is a ghost story from western Kansas that I had heard from my grandmother after I wanted more about mm -hmm. Elizabeth Polly. And have, have you ever seen any spirit? The reason I ask is because I believe in ghosts also. I believe I believe they exist. I don't see any reason why they can't. And I'm a sucker for ghost stories. I've always been a sucker for ghost stories. I've never seen one. Yeah, I've never seen a ghost either. I've always wanted to see a ghost. Um, I have, uh, but I've never seen anything that... Please tell him about Edinburgh. A friend and colleague, actually Brant Miller of Four okay. Humorous Theatre, um, we think we went, we went out to London and took a trip up to Edinburgh. Um, and uh, while we were, in, we were in Edinburgh in... Um, the week after New Year, so it was just deserted. It was like the deadest that city is during the entire inter the entire year. It was like the reverse of what I imagine the Fringe Festival there is like. Um, but we went on a ghost tour, which ended with a trip into the a crypt where the Marley Poltergeist was um, so active. Yeah, it was active. It was reported, and apparently there were many many attacks over the years, and it was the most active uh, poltergeist in the world. Is how it was. It was sold. Our tour guide was was. Uh, it was clear she was very good at her job. She was probably a storyteller. You know, like throughout the year, it was clear that she had some chops behind her. She right. was a very good storyteller. She kept us engaged. Set the, the atmosphere got you all into the mood. Yep, and it was and kind of looking a, around. Exactly, and yeah. it was a walking tour through the I love you know, those the tours. old the old city, and it was it was you know there was a story at each stop, uh, ranging from. You know about a a dog who you know laid by his master's grave uh, for you know years afterwards, but it was revealed that he was just there for all the bones that were seeping up uh, through the uh, every time it rained <clears throat> that, that that sort of thing. But it culminated with the trip into the crypt where the Marley Poltergeist was uh, supposed to exist, and our tour guide did a very good job of like building up the suspense. And before we were going to head in, she stepped up on like a little ledge and was just, uh, you know, my Scottish accent is is horrible, uh, but she's like, there, there have been over five hundred. Uh, uh, incidents of attack, anything from bites, burns, scratches, abrasions, like just going down the list. And then finally she says, now let's go in and see if the Marley Poltergeist is active. She takes one step down from the uh, little ledge that she was standing on and slips. It had rained the night before, of course, because it was Scotland. But she slips and promptly breaks her leg and just starts uh, screaming, like, it hurts so bad, it hurts so bad. And all of us are in a ghost tour, so uh, we don't really react. We just, we just kind of like, uh -huh, okay, that's good, yeah, all right. Uh, fantastic. Legs broke, and now we get to go into the Marley Poltergeist. But it becomes very, you know, after a moment, it becomes pretty obvious, like, oh no, this poor woman has broken her leg. So, very quickly, we, 
you know, run down around this old church to to go to the the um, the guard at the gate post and just say, "Hey, I think your your colleague uh, she just injured herself, and we might need an ambulance up here." The other tour guide takes us over there. It's a ten minutes of pandemonium while uh, we're trying to assist this poor woman who's just broke her leg, and you know, the ambulance is coming through into this old church and dri- uh, driving up this old hill. And meanwhile, the, tu- the other tour guide is like, all right, looks like we've got this under control. Let's go in and see the poltergeist. And we're just terrified spooked. at this point. Just huh. spooked. we just seen a woman be maimed by the, the very <laughs> earth itself. Um, very dramatic. But then we went into the crypt and it was it was creepy, but there wasn't yeah there wasn't anything. The poltergeist had struck for the day. The poltergeist had struck for the day. Quota. Yeah, yeah, it, it struck <laughs> for the day. So. Its job was done. Its White job was Creek. done. You were telling me about that. So this was my favorite ghost story as a child, and I, from the age of six, I was obsessed with this story, and it was that of a white woman who went west with her sister and she settled in central eastern Kansas um, with other pioneers in a very small community and at one point they they met a series of hardships a hard winter and at one point the men decided that because they were out of food they were going to go and rob the local it, the local Native Americans and the Cheyenne, they, the, the Cheyenne. and they uh, they went and there were there were fatalities on both sides, but they ultimately returned with food. So then, in retaliation you say for food, that attack, you mean... food? And, no, I mean they they took from their stores, okay, like right, okay. um, and so the Cheyenne retaliated by coming into the white community and taking 13, this is the legend, mind you, 13 white settlers and one of, there were two women and 11 men and it was Anna and her sister and the sisters were entrusted to nurse the wounded Cheyenne uh, dog soldiers back to health and a romance developed under these close circumstances. Both sisters married brothers who were chiefs in the tribe. And Anna and her husband had a child. They were living very happily. Um, the The white pioneers actually found that living with these people who had survived on the plains for many years and were adapted, very, they all uh, assimilated very nicely into it, except for one man that after three winters with the tribe, his love for Anna had grown, and he decided that he just couldn't take it anymore. And so he stole a pony, rode back to Fort Wallace in western Kansas, uh, told the 7th Cavalry that white people were being abused and were uh, being held against their will. And so then the 7th Cavalry and this man rode against the Cheyenne, this this man, his name in the legend is Heinrich. He kills Anna's husband, kills her child, kidnaps her, puts her on the back of the pony, and is riding east with her while the while the battle rages. And she begs him, "May I please go to my husband and my child and say a prayer so that they may pass into the next life?" 
and he grants her that and she takes that opportunity to steal the bow and quiver from her husband, kill Heinrich Faber, hops on his horse, rides back to her people, her adopted people, and rides in battle against the 7th Cavalry and dies valiantly in battle. And as the legend goes, she is still heard singing along the banks of the creek where her people were slain in in mourning. And that's the... That's the ever-present Kansas wind. It, it is, in western Kansas, it just never stops. So what form does your show take? What aspect of this? So, so then we explored... Yeah, so we, we created um, a... The, the first one was a... It's a, a one-woman folk opera, essentially. It's essentially okay. a uh, concept album on stage in that Katie plays an academic at the very beginning who uh, explains to the audience that tonight we are going to summon the ghost of Anna Wee, and she lights 12 uh, candles in a circle. She's possessed by the ghost. Uh, she picks up a, The ghost picks up a guitar and then sings her tale for about 55 minutes, essentially. It's also our homage to the American singer-songwriter. Yeah, to, like... It, the majority of the narrative is told... I mean, all of the narrative about the ghost is told in folk music, either original compositions based on, uh, like, old songs or quite simply old songs that we usually turned down into a minor key and rewrote all the lyrics for um, to kind of propel this narrative. So the first... So going even going into the process with Edgar Allan, we knew... What we had just done, which was very heavy on music, um, was right. very and somber. Very, very, very heavy on theme. Yep, very somber as well. Very quiet, uh, very... Um, and then, most importantly, just not funny at all. We had, there's like one or two uh, laugh lines in that show. Yeah. And so, going into Edgar Allen, we knew... Edgar Allen is exactly the opposite of that. It's, and it's funny, it's hilarious, that's it's what scary, we, That's it's what creepy. we needed. And that like, was, so the genesis of this was kind of a reaction to what we had just done more than anything. Right. Uh, we didn't want to repeat ourselves, we didn't... Uh, we didn't want to do another another song cycle. We knew but we, we wanted, wanted to, stay... to explore m- further American Gothic. Yeah, we right. knew like we right. felt like well, um, Poe was like at the, at, the, at the epitome of American Gothic. I mean, and that's where we went. Than Edgar Allan Poe. And that's kind of where we we decided we knew we wanted to perhaps create an an adaptation of something that was in the back of our heads, um, and perhaps something that had some familiarity um, to a. You know, if we wanted to tour this show uh, throughout North America, we wanted something a little bit familiar because Legend of White Woman Creek is known, uh, it's known very well in western Kansas and eastern mm-hmm. Colorado, and that's about it. But, um, so with Edgar Allan, um, what brought us to Edgar Allan Poe was just, you know, he is the the horror author. Um, right. And Father of the detective Father of the detective novel, yes. Yep. I mean, but he's up. He's up there with you know Lovecraft and and, and mm-hmm. Stephen mm-hmm. King, all right. As writers of the creepy, the gory, the the, the unnatural and terrible. Mm-hmm. Yes, yep. and Lovecraft was already 
fairly well represented at this horror festival. Right. Uh, so sure. that was yeah. another aspect of it. We another knew. play about Cthulhu? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We knew, yeah, we knew that a gentleman named uh, Tim Uren in, in Minneapolis, he... he, he He's write, a Lovecraft. He was a Lovecraft fanatic. He, he, he wrote for the Lovecraft card uh, board game for quite a while uh, as well. Like he, So the two of you share this, this, this penchant for... The gothic and the scary and the, and and yeah, I would say Nick has yeah. always been a writer of dark comedy. Well, I, I know your pre- I know some of your previous work with the Four Humors. Yes, right? I mean work with that Mortem Capienda and Harold. Okay? Yes, um, and they are both plays that delve deeply into you know that that scary stuff in the back of the closet in your mind, all those all those things you don't want to think about in the daylight. We're talking about. Uh, potions that make you live forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is they work. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And and Harold, which is you know two brothers and a scarecrow, and that's really all I'm going to say about that one. Mm-hmm. But it's, it was one of the, my most favorite plays that I've ever seen. I mean, mm-hmm. it's because I love those stories. Okay, so I mean, you guys have this 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 bond going on here. This 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 shared love of you know getting scared turn the lights down and creeping people out yeah we do i mean it's um i think i've always been attracted to theater for its ritualistic nature i like that it is people gathered together listening to a story and being and being engaged and and you all get you get to take it it's a lot like church for me it is my church Mm. it's where it's where you go to commune with others and something otherworldly and I think so and I also think the genre of horror is very interesting I know I have never been attracted necessarily to like slasher films probably because I haven't seen a lot of good ones other than um the ascent where I feel like there's a strong like feminist you know it's not yeah. The, you know, de- the Descent. The, the Descent. The yeah. Descent yeah. is one of my favorite movies, and, and there's a lot of blood in it. It's so good. It's I, so I, very I find, well done. I find most of them to be geared for shock value. Mm-hmm. And right? sex. Instead, and sex. Right? And Which, I, to me, is not horror. To me, horror is something that stays with me that once it gets dark, I'm going to yeah. look around for something that really shouldn't be there. And right? we, I, I like... so. My take on the horror is that I really think it's fascinating when you show people the potential, then they have a choice as to whether or not they want to make the decisions that will that, that where that will where it will happen, yeah. you know, where it can be. So do you want to show them a utopia or do you want to show them a dystopia? Do you want to and are they going to identify I just think I would think with Edgar Allan there are a lot of elements of of humanity where people see themselves mm-hmm. in that, and it's that that idea of the fatal flaw, and am I going to feed into this thing that I know is my weakness? Am I going to let it overtake me? And that's what's interesting too about how we arrived at Edgar Allan Poe and specifically the short stories that we adapted around this right. piece was what kind of first drew us to Poe was Poe's biography. Um, Like, I think both of us had read some Poe, 
but we were we were toying with the idea of of doing uh, one of his short stories. But we picked up a biography. We read the biography. And we found his life story very very compelling. Do you remember which biography this was? Who wrote it? Yes. Yeah. I can't. It was by Ackroyd. It's on the shorter side. Yeah. That's all I know. Yeah. But, it, it, but in the brief synopsis, they said that he was he was the second child of traveling actors. And we were like, <gasps> yeah, we were on that's tu- hilarious. We were on tour at the time. <laughs> yeah, we were on tour at the time, uh, I think in Edmonton when we were reading these. And uh, so we, we started thinking about like, well, let's do just a biography, like let's do a biography of Poe. Let's stage some of his life. Yeah. And I think while we were talking about that, we, again, we still had no idea what you know what's the focus or anything like that. So we were kind of stumbling around in the dark for quite a while. Um, and I think I suggested, um, well, if you know his life is so wrought with um, you know mania and addiction that he was I thought tortured soul, he was very yeah, tortured. Yeah, yeah. And in thinking about just like that mindset of that manic, you know, uh, depressive, uh, addicted mindset that your own worst enemy is always yourself. And that's where the idea to have kind of, we knew it was a two-person show, and how do you stage a two-person show? How do you create a world out of two people? And I thought it'd be very interesting to have a chorus of two Edgar Allan Poe's that create the world. So we had that idea, and then Katie, while she was reading through the collection of short stories, stumbled across one of his kind of lesser-known works called William Wilson. I had never heard. Yeah, I had never heard of it. Yeah, Uh, I'm actually not familiar with that one. Yeah, it's one of his one of his lesser-known works, but it was it's a uh, the narrative thrust is about a young man named William Wilson who is at a boarding school in England the same boarding school that Poe attended as a youth, and uh, so it was a semi-autobiographical story, but about William Wilson who meets another boy named William Wilson, and of course he shadows him and drives him insane. So that was a revelation in terms of like, oh wow, well we had the idea to have two Poe's on stage, here is this short story about someone's double, like let's just take this semi-autobiographical story and blow up the part of where he's at boarding school and have this be the subject of our piece. We were really fascinated with the idea of Poe before he was an artiste. Right. You know? This I because Poe as an adult has been plumbed. He's, oh my gosh, yeah. People yeah. think that they know a lot about Poe, that he's dark. Mm-hmm. They're cause sometimes they're surprised to hear that he was an alcoholic. They're not at all surprised to hear that he died a penniless right. author. Mm-hmm. After but, disappearing for a week where nobody what was it, Baltimore, right? Yes. He got off the train in Baltimore, disappeared for a week and showed up like yeah. two, two or three days before his actual death yes. on the doorstep, you know? And just yes. Yeah. But he was trying to flourish, he was trying to make his living in the early, in the first half of the 19th century only as a writer. And he refused to do anything else. He wasn't going to work at a canning factory, he wasn't going to work in any kind of industry that was outside of his craft. He was extremely headstrong and stubborn. And he yeah. alienated himself and, and did not make a lot of friends, to be quite honest. I mean, uh, but he was also struggling. It was an uphill battle because at that time, copyright laws, were n- there were none. Mm-hmm. And so it was very easy for any, any newspaper in the United States 
to get a copy of anything from England, which was all the rage at the time. Yeah. You didn't want anything American. You wanted something English. And to just republish it without paying anybody in your... Yeah, in, why, why would you pay an unknown American author to write when you can just take a well-known British author's work and print as many copies as you like for free, essentially? Yeah, which is an, has an interesting parallel with today's like recording industry there as seems well. seems to be an ethics problem there, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yep. yes. But you got a whole ocean in between. You know, ethics can't make it over the Atlantic. So let me ask you this. You come, you come up with the idea of Poe. You're, you're working on Poe before he becomes mm-hmm. Poe, right? Mm-hmm. What's the process like with you? Because I, I, I know, Nick, you're largely a writer. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not sure what your dynamic, creative dynamic is between the two of you. Um, you're both performers. I'm assuming you've both been on both, you know, directing and... and how, how did this work out? Um, I'm a singer and a songwriter. I, I would say I'm a singer first. And then an yes. actor. Yeah, and I would say I'm a playwright first and then a performer. Um, but um, a lot of arguing, actually. A lot of arguing. There was um, the very, yeah, the, probably the first solid month when we weren't creating necessarily in a rehearsal room yet. We were just uh, cooped up in a room, uh, right, like researching, reading stories bouncing ideas off, trying to write fragments of songs, fragments of... uh, Going crazy, hitting a wall, and honestly, every time I hit a wall, I would just go back to that huge volume, and I would just, like, open it up... Opposed collected works. Of the collected works, and just open it up, and there was gold every single time. You know what? It is such rich prose. Yes. and, And just trying to glean as much autobiographical information from his work Mm -hmm. in his own words um and so we when we 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 rented a a rehearsal room for this process which uh, we'd never done before which we yeah we hadn't done for the first the first the first time because the first show was just a pretty much a folk concert in one spot it was all it was easy to stage in our living room it was very easy to stage in the living room because that's about all the space we needed um, but for this one, we rented a rehearsal room for about the first two weeks. We were in that rehearsal room by ourselves, like just kind of on our feet, playing around with ideas, not making a tremendous amount of progress, but at least getting, um, the show on its feet. Like basically it was created piece by piece on its feet. Right. Um, but the neutral space made a big difference. What's that? The oh. neutral space. Made the neutral space difference. made a big difference. We were able to start delineating between when rehearsal time was and when mm-hmm. rehearsal time wasn't because, you know, especially when you're... Now we're on you're... the clock. Now we're off the clock. Yep. Right. Yeah. Like, so let's not talk about the show right now because we're trying to have dinner and be people for a, uh, an hour or so. <laughs> you know that's um, impossible. It is impossible. It's, it's very impossible. It's so hard. Um, yeah. But it was further assisted by we brought in a collaborator um, uh, for the, like, the last three weeks of the process like two, three weeks of it. Um, and that was a gentleman named Mark Benzel uh, in Minneapolis who uh, we'd worked on a few projects with before right. and knew that he was, uh, one, just an excellent collaborator, um, and two, would kind of meet us. He, he, he's very good at um, 
taking what he sees before him and refining it versus coming in with a whole new set of ideas. Like, no, we're doing a Poe show. I want to do it this way. He was able to meet us with the material we had and help refine it, basically. And then we also had a... um, we had a tiebreaker, too, for every time we'd reach an argument. It was very easy to just say, Mark, what do you think? Mark would say, she's right in this instant, or <laughs> you're right in this instance. And then we were able to move forward. Um, Before but- that, there was a lot of like stumbling, though. We At first, we thought it might be, because William Wilson starts with this sort of soliloquy from an an old William Wilson on his deathbed saying, where did I go wrong? Yeah, looking and back so at his youth. And so we thought maybe it's Edgar Allan Poe, you know, sh- like like covered in a blanket, an old southern gentleman. Basically Katie with a mustache. Well, yeah, and I was just like, and, and like we tried that with what we had written Many tri- many times. I think we had one. I think we had one or two songs written at that point that we knew were going to be in the show, mm-hmm. and 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 we just we were just like, this isn't working. This is ridiculous. Why don't we just cut the fat and just start in school? Yes, yeah, and that was this. where it. That was the breakthrough. The, yeah, well, and the breakthrough also was when we started playing around with this character of the 11-year-old Edgar yeah. Allen, where we had this te- like this text of him, you know, obsessed with being the best and obsessed with dominating everyone else. I'm so and, glad you mentioned that because that was the that was such an amazing opening to this particular play. Especially, you've got an amazing voice. Thank you. All right. Um, and I was going to ask you if you would give our listeners just a couple of bars, a couple of, you know, line, taste of, of what this intro song to, I mean, as we're introduced to Edgar Allen. Yes. You define who he is by make, making, making his manifesto paramount, <laughs> right? Um, would you be alright with that? I think maybe the opening monologue, but maybe without the ukulele, it's hard. Well, we don't have the ukulele, right? <laughs> like, you know, but... but yeah, that's uh, the first couple bars. I am the descendant of a race who's imaginative and easily excitable temperament has always rendered them remarkable. And in my early infancy, I give evidence of having inherited fully the character of the family remarkable. Well, and that, yeah, that was the big, probably, breakthrough of this process was when we created that juxtaposition, basically, yeah. of this this obsessive, you know, tyrant who is also an 11-year-old in boarding school. Um, it's such a great character, though. That, I mean, that, you, you, yeah. that is, um, I, I, for many years, my primary source of income has been being a nanny and I took inspiration mm. for this little boy from a little boy that I nannied from the time he was 17 months on till I mean he's he'll be 11 this year but um and he just is this little he's so intelligent and he has this wonder and his both of his parents are have their PhDs in theater and and He's very articulate, but I'm doing the evil. I'm like yeah, doing the okay. evil, <laughs> like <laughs> very calculated version of yeah. this little boy. <laughs> okay, so you, you came up with this, and you had this character that 
is so well defined in the opening monologue. How did you how did you decide what to do with him? I mean, did we always know? So our last show was with a guitar, and I play ukulele. We thought that ukulele would be a really great sound for this uh, uh, for this juvenile. Um, we also thought that ukulele was kind of a nice touch because Edgar Allan Poe was obsessed with Robinson Crusoe as a child. I it did was, not know that. It was his I, favorite yeah. book. Yes. yes, and it was it was a literary phenomenon. Like every kid knew Robinson Crusoe. Sure. Yeah. In this, in this, in in eighteen fourteen, you know, um, uh, Nick played the trumpet. Yeah, school? and that's kind of and so we we had a trumpet uh, that actually I inherited from uh, it was Katie's my grandfather. Yeah, we had it yeah. we had it restored when we moved to New York. Uh, so it's this old beautiful nineteen thirties coronet uh, that he used in bugle corps. Yeah, at, uh, in the... as a high schooler when he and he traveled all around the United the North America North America playing in a bugle corps. And so. so then it was just a process of like being in that space with these elements and just. Like our goal, because we knew it was going to be a traveling show, was how can we do this with the least amount of of props of set as possible? That's critical. Like we've got our costumes, we've got our musical instruments. Because we have our musical instruments, we don't need any sound cues, which. Um, we've learned over the years doing Fringe that the less tech you have, the more the more you can do it internally, the just better it the runs. The more the Fringe likes you. Yeah, the more, the, the more one, the tech people like you, and the more that it's just you have more control yeah. over it, basically. We um, are still wholly dependent upon lights. For both of our shows, we really depend upon lighting for, for, for mood. Mm-hmm. For... Exactly, exactly. Um, but we... Basically, yeah, like I said before, we just created it on its feet, basically, from beat to beat, um, with Mark kind of guiding us how we're going to, you know, we, we knew what venue we were going to be in, so we uh, we built it specifically for the Southern Theater in Minneapolis, which is this old, beautiful, like, 1908 uh, vaudeville, like, yeah. former vaudeville stage, this gorgeous, decaying proscenium arch, uh, and so, supposedly haunted theater as well. So it's like oh, that's even better. we knew that we knew that the venue itself was going to be plenty creepy for us, and we it's just knew, big, and it's massive. So we wanted to figure out how to bring also Poe's architectural detail that he brings to many of his stories, yeah. especially William Wilson, to life in this space. And Mark helped us a ton with the specificity. Yep, like when we say. Uh, down in a regular hallway of innumerable turns. I think it was Mark's idea to be like, show us that hallway, twist, turn, twist, been, turn, walk. I think that was Jason you know? Ballweber's oh, uh, idea. We, had we one did have another outside eye. At one point. Then, Jason Ballweber before humans. Yes. 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 Yeah. yeah, Jason Jason provided uh, a couple key contributions. of. Uh, and Mark was always friend, like he was always on board, always listened to us, but I don't think it was until Ballweber was in the room and started giggling, especially during when we introduced the birds. Mm. That yeah, <laughs> that was another thing during this creation process. We we did not expect this show to be as funny as it turned no. out, um, and we were kind of we were so in it. And Mark's a great collaborator, but he's not the type of collaborator that is gonna like be laughing hysterically no. at everything yeah. you do. He's pretty he's pretty focused, and he's like we thought it was funny, but we thought we were just being silly, and we were having fun on stage. We were having so. fun on stage, but it wasn't until <laughs> Jason watched our tech and he was just giggling through the whole thing. And I think 
we were breaking on stage a little bit, and he just said, he's like, are you just now realizing how ridiculous this is? Like, I, guess, I guess we are. Because it is one of those things, yeah. it's like, we didn't really write a whole lot of jokes into the piece at all. It's I mean, all the, it, 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 the humor derives in, entirely from this juxtaposition of exactly. this 11-year-old. Exactly. It's critical and, for, for most, for really good horror to succeed. Yeah. You've, you've got to Turn people one way, get them laughing, and then all of a sudden you turn it back towards the creepy, and it hits them even harder. Yeah. yeah. Like, I remember in when we were developing Harold um, with Four Humors, we talked a lot about that, of the, yeah. the parallel beats between comedy and horror, that it's mm-hmm. all just about breaking tension, and the beats largely work the same, they just need to be twisted in different ways, yeah. so it's fun being able to straddle uh, those areas. So let's talk a little bit before we have to go, because I know you guys have to take off in a couple of seconds. Um, French festivals. You mm-hmm. and you and I met French festival Cincinnati. Yep, two thousand eight. Two thousand eight, and um, we're meeting again here in Ithaca at a French festival. Uh, for those listeners out there who don't know what a French festival is, it's it's an invitation where acts come in from here and then there and far and away and they perform one to however many shows for a specific period of time. You're away from home. You're playing in a strange city. Uh, could be anywhere. There's like dozens of them across the United States and dozens even more around the world. Where are you taking this show to, Edgar Allen? And what's it like fringing? Because it's not like setting up at home where you're, you're comfortable and you know everybody. You're in a strange place. How do you take the same show and do it in a different venue every couple of weeks or, you know, like once a month or whatever it may be? Yeah, so we are, um, with Edgar Allen, Ithaca is the first fringe of the season for us. Uh, we, it's a tour that we, we recently dubbed the Remarkable Tour, um, and it will take us to Cincinnati after this, and then uh, Cincinnati at the end of May. And then at the beginning of August, sorry, at the beginning of August, we go to Minneapolis and then up to Edmonton and then over to Vancouver. Um, so That's a lot of traveling. It will be, especially in August, um, we'll be we on the do road. do without a car, too. Last summer, we did seven cities. Yeah. Never with a car. We're just flying places with what we have on our back. But then we usually take buses, trains. We have done Craigslist car share, and mm. we've played anywhere from uh, 25 people in a living room in Seattle to eight people in a rehearsal space in Vancouver. Yeah, it's to to uh, I mean at the end of the oh tour, goodness, to 200 to, yeah, people in, in a, Wichita County, Kansas, yeah, where uh, the leg- where White Woman Creek so runs. You, you never know what kind of house or no, you have no idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the the first uh, t- fringe tour we did um, was with the Legend of White Woman Creek. We did uh, Kansas City, uh, Minneapolis, and Edmonton, and we went into that tour thinking that you know that. We thought Minneapolis would probably be the most successful one, and Edmonton would just be a nice experience. Um, but we landed in Edmonton. We had a great venue, and we had their main paper, um, the Edmonton Journal. Saw it the first night. First night, and gave us a five star review. And after that, we, you know, within and within a in, week, we were sold out. Of there and there are one hundred and eighty shows. shows there. So the fact that 
someone read the synopsis for our, our show. We're coming in from out of town. They came and reviewed the show. They wanted to love it. They loved it, and then they yeah. told everybody about it. It it set us up so nicely. That yeah, it was yeah, it was insane. Yeah. Um, I think it actually it was pro- I mean, it was a great way to experience the Canadian fringe circuit for the the first time. I think it probably gave us inflated expectations <laughs> of what every city is going to be like. Um, in that the next following year, us everywhere. yeah, the following year we did uh, Toronto, Winnipeg, Edmonton, and Vancouver. Um, all great cities, all great festivals to do, but. Uh, uh, we saw varying le- levels of success in each of those th- cities, basically. And even yeah. even returning to Edmonton, I mean, with the same show, um, we had a very different experience than we did the previous year. So it's like, it's every festival is completely different, and every... And there are so many variables yeah. that, that can determine your success or, or, your, or the opposite. <laughs> Where do you stay? Do, do most of these places put you up? Or do you have to find your own lodging? We rely on yeah, volunteers, people basically. to volunteer the space in their homes. And okay. and we have been so lucky. We've been so lucky. We've we met. have made new friends in every town, and they are so supportive of us. Yep, people we stay in contact with. I mean, we, we will be, in Edmonton, we'll be staying with our, our friend uh, downtown Aaron Brown. For the uh, third time. For the third time. Uh, like, you know, hopefully we'll be, and yeah, it's it's. We, you meet a nice support network over the entire uh, continent. A passionate theater goers. Yeah, people that want to yeah. support live theater and support. Because uh, Fringe is different from regular regional, you know, semi-pro. It is theater. not that commercial. Mean, if, if you're going to do Fringe, you have to be into theater. Yes. Because, I mean, performers like yourselves to actually take your show on the road to places that are far from home. There has to be a dedication to it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to go see Fringe and get involved with that sort of thing, it's the level of involvement is so much higher than, you know, just putting on a tie, clean sneakers, and going to see Long Day's Journey into Night mm-hmm. again. Yes. Right? <laughs> um, but I think the, the payoff and the reward is so, is so much more for both sides. We've seen, and we've seen wonderful... I mean, that's the other aspect of, of being on the fringe circuit is you kind of tour across... I mean, especially in Canada, it's you, know, it's, you tour with the same group of people mm-hmm. just across the continent. Um, and so by, by Vancouver, everybody knows each other and everybody's friends. And it's... Uh, and you see just a tremendous amount of work too. Like we've seen Absolutely. so many plays over the summer, and yeah. like and you really have strong. to be creative because by the very nature of the fringe, you have to travel light, yeah. and it yes. forces you to be more creative. You don't have a lot of money to work with. You it, it has to be what you can carry or what you can afford to put in a car and you know gas up and drive across the country. And by the very nature, it those. Those restrictions force you to be very creative and very theatrical. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like it goes right back to you know what I, what you know, what we love about theater is that at the end of the day, it's just it's when it's a two person show. What's interesting is those two people right. and, and their relationship, their relationship in space, their relationship sonically, their relationship just um, that. That's what that's what's interesting, and that's what divides. 
divides theater from some of the other uh, performing art forms, particularly ones that you can get on a screen. Um, that, you have to be there. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's not it, yeah. not only the two people, the relationship between the two people on stage, but also the people, the, those two people, and every person in the audience, and Absolutely. how yeah. you know how you triangulate all those. Very it's a many, collaborative <laughs> dynamic, no matter which way you look at it. It is live theater. Well, it's been great talking to the two of you, Nick Ryan and Katie Hartman. This has been absolutely wonderful. And, Thank you, George. Um, good luck so much on your Fringe Tour and with Thank Edgar you. Allen. Of course. And, Thank you. Um, Congratulations on second annual much. Ithaca Fringe Festival. Yeah, Fringe, baby. We look forward to the third annual. And we look forward to seeing you guys back here. Of Most course. Definitely. Where can we find more about you guys? www.thecoldhearts.com. Dot com and it's C O L D H A R T S. All right, folks, go there immediately. <laughs>